Father, we do pray for your hand of grace and blessing on the children in their time of learning. And we come now and ask that you would, by your Spirit, be granting us grace to grow in our knowledge and love of you for Christ's sake. Amen. To try to improve society is not worldliness but love. To wash your hands of society is not love but worldliness. About two months ago I quoted these words of Sir Frederick Catherwood and they are part of the platform in our series in the Gospel of Luke as we follow Jesus' journey to Jerusalem while asking the question, what is it to be a Christian citizen in Sydney 2023? Our context here in Sydney at this very time, a city which has long held the Mardi Gras parade that occurred last week, and I lamented the fact that the Prime Minister was involved, and I hope it is the last time that a PM is indeed involved. Normally that would be it. But this year, we've been bombarded with three weeks of it in this thing called World Pride. And today, right this very morning, I understand the Harbour Bridge is closed off as they walk across. Apparently this has been held in other cities in the Northern Hemisphere for about 20 years. It's the first time it's come south. I certainly don't follow what's going on, but I don't need to. It's been constantly in our faces as it promotes godlessness as goodness. It takes good things and distorts. The other day I read Noah's Ark story to some children, and at the end, beautiful rainbow with the colours, the Lord's sign of his promised creation, though others might distort it. And now we have the word pride being promoted as something good, and it's a movement which has impacted our society and keeps seeking to do so, and if you had not gathered, I am utterly opposed to it. I consider what is being promoted to be an abomination and I grieve and lament that our society is so deluded. It is the path to destruction for our society, I believe. But what do we do? Wash our hands of it? To try to improve society is not worldliness, but love. To wash your hands of society is not love, but worldliness. Our task as Christians is to follow Jesus proclaim the truth of the gospel and to believe in God's kingdom and victory even when all seems lost. And that's why we take time to consider his journey as recorded in the book of Luke and I invite you to turn to page 873 as we look at Luke chapter 14 this morning. A, a chapter which revolves around eating and I've shared in the past of some letters of children like Wayne, age 11, who said, Dear God, my God thinks he is you. Please straighten him out. Or Walt, who said, Dear God, I love you more than anybody else that I do not know. <laughs> but the one for today is from Sheila Sanderson, about age 11. Dear God, 
My family, the Sandersons, is pleased to invite your family, the gods, over for bread and wine. I figured you might like this. You are hereby invited on November the 3rd at 7pm. Please respond in writing or on a tablet by this date. Very truly yours. Uh, cute but also biblical and capturing the theme of Luke 14 which revolves around eating and feasting. We're just looking at verses 1 to 24 today. Uh, it begins with a healing while dining and then there are two parables, each with a feasting theme. When we began looking at Luke chapter 12 a few weeks ago, Jesus warned his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Jesus is not impressed with the Pharisees, who he declares are just play-acting when it comes to their religious service. But here in chapter 14, we see Jesus turning up to dine at a Pharisee's home. Though not any old Pharisee, a ruler of the Pharisees, we're told in verse 1. It is the Sabbath day, and Jesus is being closely observed by them. Why? Because this group are all about keeping the law, and they are ready to pounce if Jesus steps out of line with regard to the law. Had this meal been set up to trap him, Quite possibly, for there is a man present who has dropsy, which is an excessive keeping of fluids that leads to swelling, and sometimes was viewed as God's judgment. And of course, uh, this echoes the incident in chapter 13, the woman bent in Jesus healing in the synagogue. Uh, that's why some think this has all been set up. Could quite possibly be in fact they're watching so closely there is another confrontation scene which follows jesus speaks directly to the lawyers and pharisees and notice there's other pharisees there and he asks them is it lawful to heal on the sabbath or not you tell me you guys are the lawyers and then verse 4. But they remained silent. Why? Davis, Davis described it. It's, it's a non-cooperative silence, a challenging silence, a silence that says step into the trap and then see what we think. Well, it's either that or they're just too afraid to commit to saying anything lest they get trapped. Those who live with this hard-hearted, judgmental use of the law are bound themselves. They have no freedom, no confidence. Jesus takes charge. He took him, healed the man, and sent him on his way. All of it a clear demonstration of his authority. This time there is no focus on the man's response, simply sent on his way. Jesus then adds another question. Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? The question again has echoes of Luke 13, verse 15 and so on. Jesus here is showing how fitting it is to show compassion 
on the Sabbath. You do it all the time. This is how you live. They have no reply. It's stronger, actually, the words that are used. They couldn't reply. They just had no answer. And that is the nature of truth when it is spoken. There is no answer. Why are they silent? Why no reply? Because deep down they know Jesus is right and they are wrong. But there is no way that they are going to admit that. There's a real peril in such silence. That person for whom it is so hard to admit to confess. I had a good friend once, actively involved in the Christian church, who influenced me and came to a point where sin was there, but he could not, he, he literally could not admit, confess. Eventually left the church, went to another church. Uh, it all started happening again. Then it happened again. And his ending was tragic. The peril of remaining silent is a path to tragedy in such situations where you cannot admit the truth. Psalm 73, we read last week, Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. And I think... Davis is right when he says, Jesus here is making an appeal to these Pharisees. It's like he is saying, can't you see setting up all these extra additional rules about Sabbath keeping is actually stifling your godliness. It's stopping you from fulfilling the very freedom which is at the very heart of the Sabbath. Surely there is something that's wrong if you prefer for a bloke to suffer dropsy for another day rather than see him get put right and healed on the Sabbath. Haven't you tied yourselves up into knots when your Sabbath keeping is all about whether you can light or put out a fire or about a tailor walking out with his needle, all these different rules that they had and many other picky details that they had added to the commandment. Don't you feel the misery of being slaves to man-made requirements? You see the point. There is something terribly wrong when Jesus has to even ask the question of verse 3. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And all of that seems to make sense of the parable that he goes on to relate, which is about shame and honour. In verses uh, 7 to 11. Don't seek the showy positions at the table, is his uh, illustration. Instead, try and, uh, instead of using that way of seeking to try and highlight your social status, uh, lest in the long run you be shamed. The whole uh, parable seems to be a little application of Proverbs 25, which reads, Do not Put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. And the lesson is spelled out in verse 11. Be humble, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You can see how he tells the story, but he wants them to, to see the, the deeper issue. 
deal with your pride, that which is actually stopping them from, from speaking. He doesn't say directly, you are so proud. He wants them to learn, to grow, to change. And he'll go on to speak further directly now to the host. But before we do, the lesson is clear, be humble. But ironically, here we are, right at the culmination of this whole event known as world pride, being plastered all over our city. And I think we need to recognise this kind of distortion has led to a great reversal. where there is no shame in that which is wrong. Or what indeed has happened, wrong has become right. And who right now gets shamed. Pride is exalted, world pride. These are the dark times we live in. The Christian to the world is to be marked by humility not pride. The Christian knows Proverbs 16, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. In New Testament Peter wrote, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Well, from verse 12, we enter into the second part of Luke 14, and Jesus speaks to his host, and he speaks in such a way that seems to, let me read it. When you give a dinner, he also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your neighbours or your relatives or rich neighbours, lest they also invite you in return, you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus here seems to me to be saying, you know how to make really sure to, as it were, live out this humility, serve those who cannot repay your kindness. That is, don't invite all your rich friends to your banquet sale. Invite you, there you have it. Quid pro quo. That's your reward, adulation from your peers, happy little cocoon. But Throw a feast for the poor, crippled, lame, blind, and then you'll be blessed. They're not able to repay you. It will be God who does that. In other words, it's like a faith feast. You'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. The day of light of justice. Well, one bloke is, is listening in on this, and he adds his little quip. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Finally, someone has something to say. Roy Clemens was an English preacher in Cambridge who wrote a book on the parables called A Sting in the Tale, T-A-L-E, is the book title. He comments on this man's response. This was merely a conventional platitude. 
the kind of empty cliché that you hear at funerals, when people don't really know what to say but feel they must say something religious. Ah, well, vicar, he's gone to a better place now. What is that old hymn says, uh, there is a happy land far, far away, you know the kind of thing. Well, the background to the man's comment, comment, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, is a passage like Isaiah 25, verse 6, where we read, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Roy Clements notes, it's like this huge free feast laid on by God himself that would even make, make even the most lavish banquet at Buckingham Palace look meagre and parsimonious by comparison. I remember that time I was watching a documentary where Queen Elizabeth was preparing for a, a state banquet and just all, all lined up. It's amazing, you know. But that's nothing in comparison to this kingdom of God banquet. Now Clements goes on to comment, so if you are a first century party goer and short of something sufficiently pious to say in the company of clergymen, a useful standby was, blessed is he who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God, this immediately marked you out as a respectable supporter of the ecclesiastical status quo. It was a coded way of saying, oh, don't you worry about me, Jesus, I'm very religious. And no doubt the man expected an equally conventional reply as a result. The first century Jewish equivalent of, Amen, brother, hallelujah, perhaps, followed by a rapid change of subject to something a little more conducive to the digestion of the Black Forest Gateau at the banquet in front of them. But if so, he gravely miscalculated. Jesus was far too shrewd to be deceived by his unctuous piety and far too good a pastor to allow it to pass unchallenged. Then Roy Clemens wrote, you see, it was a classic case of familiarity breeding contempt. This fellow thought he was spiritually okay. He knew about, believed in heaven, was quite sure he was going there. He naturally assumed Jesus would want to support him in this confidence. But interestingly, Jesus does not. The master teacher was about to prick the bubble of this kind of religious complacency. He was about to hear a parable with a sting in its tail. And there's a deliberate pun, T-A-I-L. And that sting comes in the parable of the great banquet verses 16 to 24. Jesus continues the theme by telling the story of a man who gave not just a banquet, a great banquet. This is how God's kingdom is pictured, this great banquet feast. The image is of hunger being satisfied, but it's more than just that. You do that in an ordinary meal. This is a feast which satisfies all our hungers and longings. It's the presence of others there, the social atmosphere, it's the place to be. Now, back in those days, in that time, two invitations would be sent out. First one that gave the details and secured a response to commit to coming. And then a, a second one would be sent out at the time. Come, for everything is now ready. To accept the first invitation, but to decline the second was a massive insult. But this story, we have those who had accepted 
and then they made very lame excuses as to why they couldn't come. The first labelled Century 21 excuse. I bought a field, got to check it out, it's real estate. Excuse me. The second bovine excuse. Bought oxen, got to go see. Excuse me. The third wedlock excuse. Sorry, married a wife so I cannot come. Excuse me. Rejection of the invitation. Each one with a flimsy excuse, not merely flimsy, these men despise their host's invitation and regard him and his banquet with disdain. And here's the point. Jesus is warning the religious leadership. Remember, he's in a Pharisee's house. That in rejecting Jesus, they are rejecting God's purpose for them. We're not told how they responded, but the parable is not finished either. Jesus then goes on to describe the master's reaction. He is angry. And he instructs them, go out to the city, bringing poor, crippled, blind and lame. Remember that? We heard that just earlier on. That no hope is in Israel. The leadership may reject God's kingdom, but the outcast will come in. But then there is still room for more. And here is the extraordinary move. Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in to fill the house. And here is the crux of the parable. The original invitees, Israel's leadership, have rejected it, the invitation. But others have come in. And now God's kingdom spreads far and wide, referring to the fact that it would go beyond the nation of Israel to the nations of the world, the Gentiles, to us even here in a far-off land. Verse 24 closes in solemn warning. None of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Well, there is our passage today, a healing and two parables. Let me conclude with some reflections. The confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees escalated even as the chapter began with them watching him carefully. They were caught in their web of legalism, laws which had created a stifling environment. The commentator Daryl Bock, who spoke at St Andrew's Cathedral last year, I think we heard him, he was put on the screen while I was away. Uh, well, Daryl Bock says, the Pharisees were not ready for any surprises. They wanted to define the limits of God's work. We sometimes risk missing what God is doing because we think we know how he will act. Those who wish to see God at work must be careful not to dictate to him. He acts as he will, and he has revealed aspects of his will to us, but that does not mean that he cannot choose to act in new ways not yet revealed to us. God will accomplish his plan, but we can be sure that it may come in surprising ways. Second, we've seen this in verses 7 to 14, it's a very clear call to walk humbly. And it's a warning to us in the church, don't be like the Pharisees. I quoted Fred Catherwood early, earlier, I quote him again, he said, we must be humble and not opinionated. We must be prepared to find that we are sometimes quite wrong and be able to admit it. 
We serve our fellow men because of our love for a Lord who gave his life for us, a debt which, however well we serve, we can never repay. So whatever we do, we do it from a sense of duty because it is right. What about the, the final parable, the great banquet parable? Roy Clements frames his application around the theme that familiarity breeds contempt and that the Pharisees and religious leadership are soon to learn that contempt is a sin that God does not lightly forgive. Here's what he said. What does the sting in the tail of this parable mean for you and me then? Perhaps it depends on where we're coming from. Some, like Jesus' dinner guests at that Pharisee's table, come from a religious background. We may have been baptised, attended Sunday school. We may have heard the Christian faith set out not once, but dozens of times. And as a result, we think we're Christians. But are we? That's the question this parable puts to us. We may know how to say grace before meals, but Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God demands more of us than pious platitudes. It demands decision and commitment. Come, he says, for everything is now ready. There was maybe a time when you could mark time spiritually, but now that Jesus has come, an active response is required, for the kingdom is here. That kingdom must take precedence over all the other interests and ambitions we have. Are we ready to accept such a radical reorientation of our priorities? He asks. The warning of his story is that many are not. Not everyone who hears the invitation, or even everyone who shows some initial response to the invitation, actually comes up with the goods when decision and commitment are required of them. So there is a solemn warning here in this parable for those who are familiar with Christian faith. Don't let that familiarity breed contempt. He was a great preacher. And those are words to hold on to, Roy Clements. I heard Roy Clements speak in the 1990s myself at um, Mossman, I remember. Uh, he's an international speaker, spoke at Keswick, he visited Sydney. Uh, and gave two talks up the mountains on love and truth, speaking to thousands up at Katoomba. But after 20 years as a pastor at Cambridge in late 1999, uh, this is a public report, Roy Clements decided to end his marriage to pursue a same-sex relationship. And he left his wife and four children. Who pleaded for him not to go down that track? None other than Fred Catherwood. So Frederick Catherwood is quoted, you just find this on the net, he, he said that the congregation members, he was a member of the congregation, they felt betrayed at Eden Baptist Church, Cambridge, I quote him, the church's view is that it does not matter how you are unfaithful, whether it is with a man or a woman, it is the infidelity that is a sin, Catherine would say. Talk about familiarity, breeding contempt. Roy Clemens, such an able communicator of the very gospel. A gospel which is ultimately about faithfulness. The righteous judge. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. 
and also the judge of the wicked and the faithless. And finally, let us return to the banquet thing. The reward, the resurrection of the just. Jesus, speaking about the banquet, would himself share a supper with his disciples on the night before he died. This is my body which is given for you. This is my blood poured out for you, the new covenant. And the righteous one was vindicated when he was raised from death to life. Jesus now summons us to follow him as we look forward to the great banquet, that marriage supper of the Lamb described in Revelation 19 verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Alleluia! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. Let us pray. O oh Father, give us grace to hear, to respond to your invitation. And I pray that by your Holy Spirit you will grant us grace to be faithful as we wait for the return of our Saviour Christ.